Yeah, I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. This loss in Afghanistan, while hugely embarrassing, could serve as a wake-up call. After the loss in Vietnam, a group of military officers led by John Boyd, one of the greatest American military strategists in U.S. history, created a military reform movement to change the way the Pentagon developed and used weapons. And they made enormous progress in restructuring key parts of the defense establishment. Similarly, the British, after losing the American Revolution, radically reformed their corrupt and antiquated systems of governance. Losing wars is a great spur to reform. It means that we as a society get to look at ourselves honestly. We may choose not to act on what we see, but we do in fact have the opportunity. And that's not nothing. Matt Stoller, the war in Afghanistan is what happens when McKinsey types run everything. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. A few weeks ago, I told myself I was indifferent to the events taking place in Afghanistan, but that all changed with the loss of 13 service members within days before the final U.S. forces left the country. Like many Afghan war veterans, I thought about the events taking place all week and decided to continue writing about my feelings and engaging with other veterans, which is why for today's episode, I brought back a recurring guest and fellow Marine veteran, Colonel Thomas Hobbs, to discuss our feelings on the final days of the war. In times like these, I'm so thankful to have a platform like this where I can think through my thoughts and create my own narrative without relying on the mainstream media to do it for me. Hopefully you all walk away with a better understanding of how some of us perceive the war in Afghanistan and where we believe our nation goes from here. Before you hear from Colonel Hobbs and I, make sure you head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for my newsletter on Substack. I'm publishing a newsletter on Substack once a week, every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. I promise not to spam, but I love to hear from you in the comments about some of the topics I cover on the show, as well as topics you'd like me to cover either on the podcast or write about in the future. Also, feel free to check out my Twitter account at Native Sun Speaks, where I've been publishing an essay every day for the last 19 days. My plan is to publish at least 30 days in a row and then continue my daily writing habit by either publishing on Twitter or some other platform. Either way, if you're interested in reading what I've written so far, feel free to click the link in the show notes. This episode of Confessions of a Native Son is brought to you by my organization, Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the cause, visit our website, www.ironboundboxing.org, to make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors, Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? I'm fired up today for this uh, episode of Confessions of a Native Son because I have a recurring guest 
the one and only Mr. Thomas Hobbs. What's going on, sir? Hey, Mike. I'm so glad you invited me. Like we were talking earlier, it's much more comfortable for me now than the first time we did it because I'm actually friends with you and I love talking with you. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I was just telling uh, Colonel Hobbs in the before the podcast, um, I'm really thankful to have this platform, you know, because I just feel like I have this opportunity to come and like basically create my own narrative on current events and on culture and on business. And in times like this, with regards to like the pullout of Afghanistan and the media going crazy, I just see a lot of stuff that doesn't kind of represent my narrative. And uh, I'm fired up to have you on here because I tried to record this podcast by myself and I wasn't liking the way I was conveying my thoughts. And so I hit you up and uh, I'm just lucky, man. I'm blessed, you know, and I think there's a lot of veterans struggling right now um, with everything that's going on. And I think one of the reasons, sir, is because they don't kind of have what we have in a sense of like we have people we can go to and talk to. You know, we're constantly texting, and checking in on each other and thinking outside the box and having these kind of deep discussions on things. Yeah. And for our vets that are out in the wild, you know, they don't have these yeah. communities where they can come in and talk, you know, open and honestly. Yeah, you're right. I think you're exactly right. Jake's and Jake's wig is another one who's been really helpful, especially when I first got out, I was kind of lost. It took me a good three years all this time till now today, trying to get some focus and a support network up. So you're exactly right. I think me and you are also contrarians, right? We don't tend to think like 99% of the military culture, or I shouldn't even say that the military culture as it's portrayed in the mainstream media. I agree. I agree. We, you know, we were talking about, you want to talk about Fox news? Go ahead, might as well. All right. Now, one of the things I, I've talked about before, um, when people ask me, what, what do you mean by the culture of the Marine Corps is not uh, inclusive to minorities? Fox News is on in every office in the Marine Corps, or most of them, 99% of them. At least it was when I was in. And uh, just the other day, Tucker Carlson had on a PhD who was talking about the, the economic gap between whites and blacks in America is due to a uh, the IQ of black Americans being 10 point lower than whites. And he actually said that Tucker Carlson was all about it. And we we're playing that in our offices in the Marine Corps. And then we wonder why black Marines and, and, and black officers don't feel at home and they get out when the soon as they can, because exactly that. And white people are oblivious to it. At least many of the white Marines that are there, no one's put a stop to it. And it's just infuriating. So yeah, I agree with you. And one of the challenges, like I'm a veteran, I've been on Fox News like three, like three times, just promote, you know, Ironbound boxing and everything and veteran support. But in terms of like social issues, right, it fucking bugs me. Yeah. You know? It bugs me because, you know, a lot of these conservative media networks, it is not just Fox News, it's the conservative media networks in general. Yeah. When a yeah. black guy gets killed and is unarmed, they're the same ones blaming him for being a crackhead and getting shot. And it's just like, I never see conservative media stand up for black people. You know, no. I just feel like all they do is bash black people and tell us what we're doing wrong, et cetera. Exactly. So that makes it, hard. that makes it hard to be like, oh yeah, the same people that are criticizing black people were speaking out against the death of George Floyd are the same ones that are carrying the flag of the veteran and how terrible the Afghan pullout was, how we need to hold these people accountable. And I sit back and I'm like watching this stuff and I'm like, man, y'all don't speak for me. Mm -hmm. No. There's a total double standard, double standard. There's so much more patience with with white Americans due to the, the white system, right? I mean, look at January 6th and how they were treated compared to Black Lives Matter. I mean, we everybody's talked about it to death, but it's a double standard. And you could say the same thing with Lieutenant Colonel Scheller. 
Had he been is had he been a black officer, a black lieutenant colonel, talking the way he's talking, he'd have been shut down immediately. Somehow, some way, the Marine Corps would have found a way to muzzle him, and he's still not muzzled. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I think like for military officers, especially black officers, like it's such a tight rope. Like you got to be perfect, and we've said this before. And I know he were critiquing. Who was the general that uh, just got promoted? The black general? Oh, uh, Tony Henderson. Yeah, freaking superhero. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Law degree, infantry officer. Yep. And we already talked before how hard it is to get black people to go infantry. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, uh-uh, we're not touching that. And it's like, man, you see some of this talent in the military, and you're like, in yep. any other aspect of life, they would be kind of superheroes. And, you know, yep. sad that, like, you know, we put them on such a high standard that they have to be perfect. And if they have any yeah, exactly. chink in their armor, you know, we shut yep. them down. Oh, yeah. Obama had said anything, you know, even one word of the stuff that Trump, the stuff that came out of Trump's mouth, like grabbing pussies. I mean, he'd be called a rapist and a sex serial, you know, sexist and all that. He wouldn't have survived that. But yeah. we accept it from a white guy. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of criticism about, I don't know General Austin personally. I know, I know some were uh, Secretary of Defense Austin personally. I know people that do. And one of the criticisms I heard, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, is that he's a yes man and he pleases people. But I would say that as a black person in the military, how the hell else are you going to make general? Yeah. It's very, very difficult to make general without saying, any, as, even as a white guy, if you're going to be a rebel and a rebel rouser, you know? That's the thing, right? I see, Remember I talked in this before about traps, right? Lloyd Austin, yeah. right? He's the Secretary of Defense, right? Yeah. Secretary of Defense, black guy, right there, front and center, the debauchery in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. Who do you think they're going to blame? Lloyd oh, yeah. You know, and it's just like, damn, man, we how do we avoid these traps? You know, yeah, it's catch 22 every step. So um, but again, sir, honestly, like I'm fired up to have you on here. Um, there's a lot that's been going on, obviously, that we're going to talk about, mainly the uh, withdrawal of Afghanistan and how the veteran community is dealing with it and just kind of have an open and honest discussion about how we perceive okay. things um, as veterans. But before we do that, we got to give our confessions. And I'll go first. And my okay. confession is that I thought I was over Afghanistan. You know, I recorded my podcast, Confessions to Two Afghan Veterans. I wrote an essay about it. But one of the things that I think changed it for me was when that suicide bomber took the lives of those Marines. And my whole community was hurting, you know? And it's like, I was hurting too, you know? Because we know what those faces look like. We know those young Marines and those young Lance Corporals and we know the responsibility of it. And the best way I can describe it is like, I told myself I was indifferent to everything that was going on just because, you know, I was over Afghanistan, but it felt like, you know, when George Floyd was happening and you're a black guy, mm -hmm. right? And everywhere you walk, everyone's talking about it. And it just kind of mm -hmm. makes you emotional, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, right, I got emotional about the Marines. And like, I think for me, it was one, being an officer and just kind of understanding that burden even though they weren't my yeah. Marines personally, but understanding that. Yeah. Two, I think it was the fact that like Afghanistan, I fucking hated Afghanistan, you know? And to see it in like that and to take those lives of those Marines bothered me. And then I think the third part about it is just like, we're all just kind of spread out, you know? And it's just, you know, we're watching these events unfold on social media and in the mainstream media. And I was just like yeah. in my little podcast studio by myself, and I found out yeah. Marines got killed via social media. So it's just a lot of emotion to it. And oh, I think yeah. I'm a guy that like tends to compartmentalize things, but I'd be lying mm -hmm. if I didn't say like, Hey, you know, 
it bothered me. And I wasn't present all weekend because all weekend my mind felt like it was plugged in the social media. It was plugged into Afghanistan and it was plugged yeah. into like, where do we go from here? Yeah. You know, those every one of those, the Marines and the, and the sailor and the soldier that died there, they're almost all of them were bo- babies when 9-11 happened, maybe even were born after, you know, so they grew up under this war the whole time. They still went, they still joined. It makes me love them. And I'm really sad for their parents and it fucking sucks. Yeah. And it sucks the way we're leaving that place. And, and the tactical decisions that were made, they're, they're disastrous. And relying on the Taliban for our own security is, is insanity. And, and, you know, as much as I disagree with Alex House Scheller, when about saying what he said, I do agree with him about the accountability or something fucked up happened over there. I don't understand how how we could have messed it up that bad. It's terrible. I, let me tell you, I think I can, because when I was over there, right, there was stuff that was told to me by commanders that I had to tell the Marines. And when I yeah, said yeah. it, I felt like I had a penis coming out of my forehead. Yeah. I listened to your podcast with uh, Herb, Herb and, uh, and I experienced the same thing in Iraq. So, yeah, I could see how it happens, but. It just shouldn't happen. Yeah. But it does. What about your confession? Yeah. I will say that with this stuff with Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, you know, and how divisive our country is right now, uh, I'm definitely part of the problem. I have so much hate for the other side. I don't know how you do it, Mike, to to keep trying to build a bridge with them and talk to them and have empathy for them. And I'm even me saying the words the other side and calling them them, I'm just part of the problem. I don't know how to get out of it. I appreciate you sharing that. And it's very, it's easy to be polarizing, you know? And um, I think for me, right, and I've tried to write about this, is I just kind of see the human and everything. I see the best and worst of myself in other people. And it's just like, I get to see all these different aspects. I'm not going to do a podcast about this, right? But the best way I can describe it was the other day or a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the movie Alien. You understand? And I was like, is a fucked up creature you know it's killing people whatever and then it dawned on me and it was like yo i'm 34 years old i've never seen an alien kill people i've never seen a monster come out and kill people all i've seen is humans do it you know and then it made me think about like man like where does people come up with these ideas for these things these aliens and these monsters and these creatures and all this violence we see on tv they see it from us, the human experience, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it just kind of had me do this like self-reflection. And I started to realize that like, no matter how moral and virtuous we all think we are, right? We're all capable of the worst in humanity. But for whatever yeah. reason, it can be our networks. It can be our upbringing. It can be, you know, how we choose to spend our time that keeps it all like in check. And so, you know, when I look and see like, the far right person, right? Rather than, uh, you know, beating them up or whatever. I'm just like, you know, at the end of the day, like I try to find like some common ground, some human, you know? And I'll give you another thing too, is like, obviously there's a lot of talk in the media about race. Let's talk now because we're a little bit further from George Floyd. And I already know white people are triggered about it. So they're like, yo, let's move on. But I went to my buddy's wedding, Ian Kilo, down in Podunk, Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. And like this would what you would think would be like, you know, people that are anti-Black Lives Matter movement, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Poor country people. These were like the nicest mm-hmm. people ever. 
you guys from around yeah. here? You know, oh, you guys up in New York? You know, me and Philip Jones, Lieutenant Jones, uh, not yeah. Lieutenant Jones, Major Jones, future Major Jones, mm-hmm. whatever, we went down there. Mm-hmm. And everyone was just so nice to us. And it goes back to like, I think media is so dangerous, man. I think a lot of the stuff we get is because the media is just so shows such an extreme side of issues and human humanity that it's almost like comical, you know? And I think there's a lot more like moderate and progressive thinking out there, but they just don't have platforms. And so, you know, if you looked at America through just what you see on the media, right, it would really make you think we're just trying to rip off each other's heads. But I think a lot of people are just trying to make it day to day, you know, to try and take care of themselves, take care of their families. And I try to come from that like common ground. Yeah, I, I, and I hear you, and I agree with I, I actually agree with you on a lot of that, but I can't. And mentally, I do. In my heart, I can't all the way because I have I have a more pessimistic view. You know, first of all, I do believe there are a lot of moderates. I think the silent majority is the moderates right now, but they're not the ones on who, who speak. The ones who scream and speak are the the fanatics on either side, and the moderates by not speaking up are letting it slip off to the extreme. So it pisses me off that moderates don't speak up. Um. You know that saying about how black people, I think we talked about it in the last podcast, but how black people talk about the way white people view them. So black people will say in the North, they don't care how high we get as long as we don't get too close. And in the South, they don't care how close we get as long as we don't get too high. So I think that Southern family gentleness you felt and the camaraderie and warmth you felt, yeah, they don't mind how close you get, but you better not tell them what to do. And I think that's very much what the Marine Corps is like because a lot of our senior sergeant majors are black or our sergeant major, sergeant's major are black, but the most senior sergeant major is junior to the most junior lieutenant or a lieutenant, right? Yeah. So they really don't, they're not that much senior at all. So, you know, and then a white commander puts his arm around the black sergeant major. He loves him. Yeah, he sure does, but he better not tell him what to do. So I I think some of that, and I, and I feel threatened. So I don't understand how you can be so empathetic and understanding. And I admire that about you because I can't bring myself to do it when they are a threat. And even if they're not a physically a threat, are they going to stand up to stop you from being shot or killed or drug away or sent away from America? If you're brown or black, are they going to do anything about it? And this whole era, starting with Trump and the white, I guess it's white lash after Obama, I'm most angry at my white friends, so-called friends, acquaintances I built up in the Marine Corps, not one of them. Most of them have not contacted me about, since, about my article, even if they're in and they're in charge of a lot of things and they have black Marines. The only one who did was... Uh, was uh, General Miller. He's the only one who's contacted me about that article. Everybody else has been calm silence, right? So and meanwhile, they're playing Fox News. Would they fight for me if I got deported because of the color of my skin? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So it's it scares me. I think, you know what I think it is for me, though? Also, I didn't mention this. I don't even swim upstream no more. You know, that's my thing, right? I don't fight those battles, right? I don't try to work with nobody that I got to force my space on. You know, I don't beg nobody. Right. So I think it's I think it's that. Right. I think that's like I was frustrated and I was angry when I always felt like I was swimming upstream, when I always felt like I had to prove myself. Right. Nowadays. And because of platforms like this with Mike Stedman, it's like what you see is what you get, you know, and that has just created a lot more, I guess, peace for me. As opposed to like the frustration I think a lot of black people feel when they're trying to make space for themselves in corporate America, when they're trying to make space for themselves in the military, they just always feel like they're up against it. And it starts to create this level of resentment as opposed to just going where you feel like you're loved and appreciated. 
But you see, you're operating outside the system. You've created your own system. You're right. right. And that, that can't be the solution for every every American who's not white. It can't be. That's not that's not going to work. So we need people like you because maybe you're the ones keeping us together and not spinning out of control or reaching your hand across the aisle. You don't, I mean, you're not picking sides. You're trying to hold the sides together. So that's good. But not the American dream is not doing what you're doing. If the system is all individual. Yeah. I always try to practice self-awareness on it though, because I got bougie problems, mm-hmm. right? My problems now is like tomorrow, do I get a mocha latte with almond milk, you know, or do, in the morning? It's like, Hey, where am I going to sit and write tomorrow? You know, do I go to, uh, you know, Sweetwater cafe downstairs or do I go to boss bling? Um, but I understand like, it wasn't always like that for me, but I think it's just because like, I kind of found my stride and my space and entrepreneur, but you're right. Like I kind of work in my own system that I built for myself. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So let's start talking about Afghanistan. I mean, that's one of the reasons I want to bring you on here. And I guess I'll start with this, right? You've already said it's been a shit show, the pullout. What did it feel like watching, you know, first of all, finding out that we were drawn from Afghanistan so suddenly and then watching the, the, the debacle play out over social and the mainstream media. You know, I, I, first I got to make clear to everybody who, who's listening is I, I hadn't been to Afghanistan. I've done Iraq three times, you know, and so the only thing I can relate that to is watching ISIS take over after we pulled out and all the heart, the places I fought in Ramadi, El Kaim, it was just was eaten up over, you know, quickly in weeks. And it was terrible to see. And it really bothered me personally. I'll say that Afghanistan, the, the withdrawal and the pullout and the debacle that it became didn't hit me in the, in the gut the same way. That seeing ISIS take over Iraq did, but I know I know what it feels like, and 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 it did hit me in the gut when the when the Marines and the sailor and the soldier were killed. That really fucking hurt. But I just infuriated because I don't think it had to happen that way. Even my own kids, you know, with a little bit of group think, could figure out you don't pull out the, all the protection before you pull out the people you're supposed to get out. It's just you know logical. So why do we do it opposite? And it's it's so frustrating. I, I don't I don't have words for it. No one's explaining it, and that that pisses me off too. Then we wonder why why no one has trust in the government and things are falling apart. That's part of the reason why. Like I said before, I was over the whole pullout. Like, fine, shit show, get us out of there. When they lost Marines, it kind of hit, you know. And mm-hmm. like, honestly, didn't know where to place the blame. You know, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. were like. Oh, blame the commanders or blame the president. But I'm like, yo, Afghanistan's been a shit show for years. You know, where was the uproar when when not got overrun? And for those of you that aren't military, right, this was like the most tactical failure of where to put a base ever. It was literally in the middle of a draw with mountains on top. I mean, it was just prime to get overrun. And sure enough, what happens? Got overrun. We lost, what, nine soldiers? Um, yes, and it wasn't like they had issues just one day. I mean, this was a this was just like a remote outpost. And when I think about stuff like that, it's like it goes against like how we're taught, you know, as infantry officers about you know setting up your position so you have a tactical advantage. It was like the exact opposite. So it was like where was the where was people upset about that? I was literally in Afghanistan stepping off for a mission, and I had a lance corporal engineer, combat engineer tell me he couldn't sweep and he was attached to our unit because his commander said that they're not allowed to sleep at night. Literally came and we're literally getting sent out on a mission. So it's like, why are you here? You know? 
We couldn't yep. take over compounds at night while we're on the night up. Yep. You know, we're going to go yep. coil up in the desert. You know, mm-hmm. all kind of just dumb stuff. I literally had to go. I, I'm not lying. We caught a guy with a weapon, an insurgent. We literally had to go capture him, bring him back. Then we had to let him go and give him his gun back. You know, it's like just kind of yep. dumb stuff. And so for me, it's like Afghanistan has been a mess for the longest time. And it's like, where is all this coming from now? Have you read uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22? I have not, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, it's it's talks about uh, World War II, the same, and, and just the asinine, I mean, the term Catch-22 came from that book. Just, uh, you can't, any which way you go, it's a goddamn minefield, a stupid bureaucracy. And, uh, the, you know, that you talk about the pilots, you had to fly. Um, if you're, you couldn't, well, something to do with being sane and insane. And if you felt it was a suicide mission to go fly, you were sane, therefore you could fly. And, and so it was a catch 22. And if you, if you felt like it was safe to fly and go bomb on these missions that most of them, that a lot of them didn't come back from, then you're insane. It, it's a catch 22, a moral dilemma, or it's a dilemma, whatever action you take gets you stuck. And, and the problems you talk about in, in Afghanistan and the stuff I saw in Iraq is no different than that book and still going on. I think the uh, there's an article in Atlantic talking about we're all guilty for what happened in Afghanistan. I haven't read the article yet, but I, I I know I agree with the title already because I think we are all guilty because no one's got skin in the game, right? And so before when we had the draft, at least middle class and lower class people had skin in the game because they were getting drafted to go fight, and that caused protests with Vietnam, big protests, right? And therefore the Vietnamese beat us because we were having internal divide. And then we collapsed from the inside and we lost the uh, will to fight that war. Then with the all-volunteer force, who who and uh, also contractors, huge amount of contractors, that's part of the reason why the Afghanistan military failed because we took the contractors out and all the software with it. And they couldn't fly their planes or fix their, their, their vehicles or anything. So who the American public doesn't care because there's a volunteer force and the contractors going over there. So just I was at a soccer party for my son last summer or this past summer. Um, and one of the mothers found out I was a Marine and told me, thank you for your service. And then one of the young women sitting on our tables from Afghanistan, and she has relatives in Afghanistan. And that mother who said, thank you for your service to me, faced the, turned to the woman and said, Hey, do you still see your, get to go home and visit your family? So she, she obviously had zero understanding of Afghanistan. Yet she spits out the words, thank you for your service. It's fucking meaningless. Right? So why, why aren't generals held accountable? Because, the politicians aren't holding them accountable. Why aren't politicians holding them accountable? Because they're still getting votes, even though we're having a war that's running. Well, fuck that. Well, how we make accountability is to have people to have skin in the game. So if we can't draft them, let's tax them and pay for the war instead of printing money to pay the pay for the war. So if we had a war tax, like 1% of your income for everybody in your household. So if I have a four-person family, that's $4,000 a year for per year of the war. You know, I'm a... And I'm, I'd be asking, why the fuck are we going to Iraq again? Show me these chemical weapons. Or why are we in? Why are we fighting the Taliban now when we went in to kill Al Qaeda and we got Osama, Osama bin Laden? Why are we there now? I don't, can't afford four thousand dollars a year. Or I don't want to spend four thousand dollars a year. So until we have that, there's no going to be no accountability. So all Americans are responsible for the Marines and sailors and soldiers that just died. All of us, every one of us, because we don't fucking care. You mentioned Iraq. How do you feel about the war in Iraq? Same thing. Fucking waste. 
Why is this? No. Why can't Do you we? say that stuff? Right? It's almost like it's almost like you're un-American when you call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, that's how we get stuck there because we don't want to admit it's a loss. So if we quit now, then everything we just invested is a loss. So we have to keep going mm-hmm. and, and reinforcing failure, right? No one wants to admit that their son or daughter died or was maimed or their father or mother for, you know, because of a co- for a war that we couldn't win or didn't win. But that, you know, that's not why we go to war. I didn't fucking go to war for my country. I went to war because I wanted to fight. And then once I was there, I fought for my brothers and sisters to the left and right of me. That's why I really fought, Right. Most, I think most people are really that way. I, I don't, I'm really not that um, patriotic. I become more patriotic because of my service, but I didn't initially join because I was. It was free college and I wanted to go fight. I could give a fuck what the war is about. I just wanted to fight. And once I was there, it was all about my brothers and sisters, right? So, uh, you know, we did things courageous, we, all of us, for each other. And in, in, in that way, it wasn't a waste. It was actually kind of beautiful. And it was the best time and worst time of my life. So in that way, it wasn't a waste. But thinking from a national strategic advantage uh, perspective, it was a fucking complete waste. I wish we could have more spaces as veterans to talk about this stuff, just from an open and honest perspective. Because I just get this sense, like, if you're a veteran and you say there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, it's like you're unpatriotic. You know? Yeah. It's like look at you yeah. and it's like you got to be careful what you say because you don't know if you're going to rub people the wrong way by having your own like opinion which i thought was the whole purpose of freedom in the first place exactly just like the whole copper colin kaepernick thing it pisses me off we fight we you know we protect our constitution so people can protest by kneeling at the national anthem right and then trying to make people stand for the national anthem what are we the fucking soviet union it's fucking crazy. It's exactly opposite of what we fight for. We're, we want that. I don't understand. I think part of it is because we're not like a draft military, you know? So it's like a yeah. different kind of very marketing and kind of propaganda to get people fired up to join. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just one of those things mm-hmm. that they have to protect. And there's a lot of dollars that go into it. You know, there were reports that came out like the military paid um, for the football uh, stadiums, you know, the they paid the yeah. NFL to do that. So it's like, you got to look at the origins of things to really understand. Cause I think Vietnam was just such a stain on the American psyche and the military psyche mm-hmm. that they had to kind of rebuild it up and create this. What we have now was with this, like the super Patriot, <laughs> you know, super yeah. Patriot. It's forced, uh, yeah. It's forced patriotism. It's not real patriotism. It's fake. You know, we even think about it. We really haven't won a war since world war two. You can count the cold war. I guess you can count Desert Storm, which is really a battle, um, one big battle. But I don't think we really won a war, right, since World War II. And World War II was won not by the destruction we wrought, which was that was the initial foothold by destroying everything, 60 percent of all of Japan. Right. And, all, and Germany is completely laid to waste. But I think what really won the war was changing minds. And that was through our 30 year and continuing occupation in a way of rebuilding their country and having a gentle occupation compared to how the Soviets or Germans would have done it or Japanese would have done it. And they loved Americans because of it. And they became strong industrial powers that support us. But it was the, it was the investment over three or four generations that did it. The, it. Had we pulled out right after destroying all the Germany and Japan, they would have fucking hated us and they'd still be fighting yeah. us. Right. So this, you, we can't just win by blasting everything. Like we thought in 2003, when we initially got Saddam Hussein to collapse, his government to collapse, because obviously we had a long insurgency fight. We lost that fucking war. 
So here we at go. At the again. end of the day, I think it goes back to human yeah. experience. Like we're all trying to live with each other, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we're just watching stuff get played out at the national level of what happens when countries are trying to live with each other and battle resources, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Mm-hmm. So let's go back to Afghanistan. One is, as you reflect on the war, right? And again, full transparency, right? I'm not the tactic mas- tactical master, right? I've been relieved for a bad attack I led in Afghanistan. Full transparency. Yeah. But yeah. I can speak to the cultural, cultural aspect of being a veteran, how it was perceived, our efforts there, et cetera. Why do you think we were in Afghanistan in the first place? I mean, do you buy the whole, this is where... Uh, uh, they were hiding Osama bin Laden and all this kind of stuff. Was it a resource yeah. we were there? I yeah. mean, what what are your thoughts? No, I, I it's Al Qaeda was there, and that's where the, you know the planning and originating of nine eleven attacks occurred. And Osama bin Laden was there, and the Taliban were hiding them, were letting them live, work there. So yeah, that that invasion, I think, was was uh, um, right. However, I don't think we debated it enough. I th- we we struck back in anger. Right. It was emotional more than it was really well thought out. We didn't go in there with a big enough force. We couldn't capture Osama bin Laden with our first initial entry. We, we He escaped through the mountains and, and uh, we fucked it up. We tried to do it uh, too cheap of a dime. Right. Or not enough investment. So and then even after we and then somehow I don't know how it happened, how it morphed into a war against the Taliban. Because it was supposed to be a war against Al Qaeda. We're doing fine with special operators in there and three-letter agencies in there whacking al-Qaeda in Afghanistan before we ever sent conventional troops in there. We're doing that already. So once we got the conventional troops in there, we kind of got stuck, and then it became a war against the Taliban. Then it became a war about making Afghanistan a democratic place, which it will never be the way we like, we think of it, right? I mean, going back to the ugly American and our, our, our single myopic perspective, because they're tribal. Japan is homogeneous. Germany is more homogeneous than Afghanistan is, right? So they're they're easier to occupy and then mold somewhat in the shape of us in their own way, but at least there are people already together, unlike Afghanistan, it was a bunch of tribes. No one's it's not just that. It. Afghanistan is biblical. I mean, like these people mm-hmm. will out-survive you. Like some of them, I mean, we got television stuff over here. They got old school 1910 radios, you know? Like they, yeah. they till their fields with the little sickles, you know? So it's a, for those that haven't been there, I mean, it's almost like going back in time in some of these places, at least yeah. where I was in Hellman province. Um, so oh, yeah. you can look there and be like, this ain't about to be no democratic, <laughs> you know? No. When, uh, but yeah, exactly. But when we get, when we, when we get our uh, power grid knocked out by the Chinese or Russians someday and, and we all go to shit, we'll be looking to Afghanistan for leadership because they know how to live like that. We don't, we'll, we will be- We'll in, lose in our mess. minds, start cutting yeah. off heads. That's why they got the mm-hmm. purge, right? You want to see how America mm-hmm. let me watch the purge. <laughs> um, yeah. But I want to ask you this, right? Like you were a senior officer, right? And when I was going through Afghanistan, right? I've interviewed, I've talked to veterans, like my platoon sergeant at the time was in Afghanistan like 05. It wasn't this big IED threat. Mm-hmm. Like we had in 2012, where it was like a freaking minefield, you know, and tactically we look mm-hmm. silly, you know, God willing, I'll be able mm-hmm. to get someone from three, five on here to kind of talk about their experience. But I mean, for those that don't mm-hmm. know, three, five was one of the units in Afghanistan and they got hurt really bad. You know, they lost, I think 22. Mm-hmm. I, I could be getting the numbers wrong. 
I don't remember the exact number. I know the battalion commander very well. He's, he's yeah, but I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it literally looked like hell on earth, right? You go look at a lot of the videos and stuff up there, some documentaries that were covered from that time, it looked like hell on earth. So, you know, I'm going through Afghanistan in that time where we're like sweeping, carrying shaving cream, et cetera, right? But I will tell you, sir, by 2014, when I got my next platoon and we went out to ITX, those Marines didn't even know what, like, anything. It was like a completely different tactics. They would yeah. walk up to IEDs at ITX, yeah. which is where we were training before we went to uh, Okinawa. And they're, like, standing there, like, mm-hmm. looking over IEDs with, like, their shades and stuff, right? And it just made me realize just how different stuff had changed in, like, two years, you know? And then the other thing, too, was going mm-hmm. back to what you were saying. In 2012, we had so many contractors, you know? You had the McKinsey's down. I mean, you had contractors upon contractors, Everyone had to brief their gear. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to do this. Everyone had to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes you wonder, like, these Marines that went in there to kind of unfuck this shit show and get people out, like, how prepared were they for that kind of environment? Oh, yeah. That's a... You know, I, I've talked to an old Sergeant Major of mine. We're, he, we were a really good team together, but he... We talked about that a long time. The TTPs are not getting passed down from... Uh, Generation to generation in the Marine Corps, it's just not. And a part of it's our, and I, you know, I do studies on it, so I'm, uh, I'm familiar with this pretty a lot. Actually, is uh, our training and education system doesn't allow for it, and why it doesn't allow for it? Because our manpower system is is built on World War II style industrial uh, pipeline through which we build up people to a basic, the minimum standards, a C average, so we can go pour people in to a very huge fight like World War II on off of a draft, right? But so you raised in the Marine Corps alone, we raised 30 to 35,000 people a year. We got to go beat the streets and find people 35,000 people a year. And then we're kick out almost the same amount every year. Right. So we're losing this, this institutional knowledge, just as we're starting to get a return on investment, they leave after their four year contract. Now I heard that the four year contract is around because it gives uh, each Marine two pumps on a standard six month cycle mute, 18 months back, six months out. And that equals two four-year contract. And that's what we've 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 become so stuck to that, right? We can't break out of that without changing and ripping apart the manpower system. So we're turning over 90% of our Marine Corps every every uh four years is almost completely changed over, except for a few staff and jails and officers that remain. And then we wonder why our TTPs aren't getting passed down, why we we never seem to be, seem to be able to get past the crawl stage or maybe walk stage, but we're never at the running stage. Never, because every year the staffs have almost completely turned over. The Marines are almost all new, and we're back to that. So how, how can we be the best fighting force in the world when we're turning over our Marine Corps every four to five years, almost 100%? It's impossible. So we have to change our manpower system and how we recruit, how we retain, who we keep. It's got to be more flexible. It can't be based on just four-year contracts. We have to be able to keep long people longer in their positions. Maybe there's a step program in within a rank. So let's say you love being a rifleman. I just want to be a fucking rifleman, right? But eventually I have a family. I have to keep making money, but I want to be a fire team leader the rest of my life. So, okay, you'll be a corporal for the rest of your life, but you'll be a corporal step one, corporal step two, corporal step three. And maybe in your salary, you'll get a little higher. You'll never be rich, but you can continue doing what you, what you love and, and maybe you make enough to make a living. But we, we can't keep doing this up and out, right? You have to advance or you're forced out as well. We're just It just doesn't work in today's world especially with uh, with uh, operations in an in, in, you know, information environment, with, with technology, with cyber, with space. 
how are you gonna how are you gonna keep the you got to keep them around, right? So you invest all this money in this kid, then you kick them out after four years, or they're gonna get a job with a private private company, making more money. We have to be more imaginative of how we keep our monies and, and recruit our ranges. It's just impossible to do what we're doing. And even going back to ITX, right? In 2012, the I felt like they made mini Afghanistan out there. No, they had the role mm-hmm. players. You know, like we all knew we were going to Afghanistan. I mean, we had video software, mm-hmm. everything. That was 2012. 2014, mm-hmm. it was a shell. You know what I'm saying? It was like night mm-hmm. and day, right? Half the con I guess the contract yeah. cycle had run out or whatever. I can only imagine what it had to be like in 2020. You know, who knows? They probably got like one role player yeah. out there. You oh, know? Yeah. And so I, I think right. that, that ties back to what mm-hmm. you were saying before about like they're just a different environment, you know. They don't have the same kind of yeah. experiences and training that a lot of us had when we were going to Afghanistan. No. No, and, and, and even deeper problem than that is because of the 20 years we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, we we became reliant on the uh, the PTP, right? Uh, the I know what you're talking about, that again. cycle. It's like the cycle. Yeah, the, 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 the training pipeline that's specifically designed – for the the area of the yeah. operations you're going into, so our training was because we're rotating units so fast, they have to just get what exactly they needed for Afghanistan and Iraq, and off they go, right? And they got it at 29 pops. So before the war, so I spent the first half of my career. I came in in '91, before nine. So exactly 10 year mark was 9/11. My first 10 years was spent being taught by Vietnam veterans, and we had 18 months in the rear before we deployed and we really learned how to build a training plan and execute that training plan and build it off of mission essential tasks with outcomes and corrections to those outcomes. If we didn't reach it, it was, it was almost like heaven when I look back at it now, I didn't know it at the time. And then nine 11 happened and then PTP started and it's been going on for 20 years now. So people had their entire career under PTP. Now, as we're winding down, people don't even, the Lieutenant colonels have come in after nine 11 battalion commanders. And they had, they were raised on PTP. So how do they, they don't know how to design training. It's true. We've gone, gone out and interviewed them. They just don't know because they haven't been taught. They've been been force-fed training their whole lives. So we have to we have to almost rebuild our culture. I think we're going to have to rebuild a lot more than that. After You know, I think yeah. the biggest complaint, with, people are embarrassed. I think that's what it is. I think people are embarrassed, yeah. particularly the Marine Corps, because that was just such a heavy Marine operation mm-hmm. both our our time there in Hellman and then also mm-hmm. um the pullout and being responsible for the pullout and it's like you mm-hmm. put marines on this pedestal of tactical experts and mm-hmm. the best America has to offer and then we go in there and it just looks raggedy as hell on social media yeah. um and we get to see marines doing marine stuff like police calling or the Taliban you know mm-hmm. there's a video circling that mm-hmm. where they made them police call before they left and like that whole community, you know, I'm, I've seen worse, you know, but it's just like, that's real. That was the Marine Corps, you know? Yeah. It just pisses me off though, that Americans are angry now because they're embarrassed or ashamed and, and not of Marines, but of the way our nation has, has pulled out of there. But where the fuck were they the last 20 years? Why didn't you care that? I think we could have saved more lives and, and had a little more debate about what we're doing had Americans been more invested. I mean, we talk more about Afghanistan now this past two weeks than we have the yeah. past 10 years or 15 years. From a tactical perspective, right? Because you change, like, I, again, I don't know who's who's at fault for this, right? I can go the mainstream media route and just fucking blame the current administration, right? 
I can look back at the mm-hmm. history and see, you know, the mm-hmm. long, long history of people that have put us there. But on the tactical mm-hmm. aspect of it, I feel like you can speak to this. Like, what? Because part of me thinks it was an impossible situation in the first place. Yes. But you texted me and you said that people need to get relieved over it. And why why do mm-hmm. you think that is? Because that was a textbook uh, tactic that the Al-Qaeda used, right, with a suicide bomber, the way they did it. And we were a magnet. I mean, we knew this was going to happen. Every one of the veterans, for sure, saw that mass of people concentrated in that one area as a fucking magnet. It was going to happen. We knew it. So we knew it. Why didn't we do anything about it? Some, so some, we're all, somebody's wrong. It's at every level, probably, right? It's a battalion commander. It's the, it's the, whoever the general was on the ground at the time. It's the, it's the people that sent the forces there untrained. It's all the same things that occurred that allowed the AEV accident to happen, right? The maintenance wasn't done on the AEV. The people didn't have swim call. They didn't know what to do when the AEV started to sink. They didn't know how to use their semaphore flags. The, the ship didn't pull out a sit, put a safety boat out with them. Their comm links were broken. All this stuff, every one of them was a mistake across every level for years, right? So you could fire everybody involved. Of course, we really didn't um, after that. We fired the battalion commander, the mute commander. No, the mute commander, I don't know if he got fired. I have to remember. I can't remember. Battalion commander did and the company commander I did, I believe, right? And the general who sent the forces, the AAV platoon out to the MU, he was only smacked after a bunch of uh, stuff hit the news. He was going to escape. He was the uh, inspector general, actually, in charge of inspecting that mishap. He had been the second, the first Marine Division commander at the time of the accident, right? But he only got in trouble later because the media made us think about it. So all those things happened. Who's at fault? everybody is and nobody is, I guess. And it's the same thing with Afghanistan because there's so many layers and so many things that allowed that to happen. It's not anybody's one, any one buddy's fault. I would have. And I wasn't there. So I, I wasn't there in the situation. So I can't, I can't Monday morning quarterback it because I, I wasn't in the battalion commander's seat. I don't know what pressures he was under, what he was given, what he was told. How difficult do you think it was briefing the order for that kind of mission for those like company commanders and the, platoon commanders. I mean, do you think they knew they were going into a, I mean, what do you think that was like for them? Yeah, I'm sure they were, I don't know if they've been trained for it. I don't know. I, I do know, uh, we know how to do Neos. We have a fucking big ass pub about it. Joint pub on how to do Neos. We've trained to do non-combatant, uh, evacu- evacuation operations. We know how to do it. And this was not done the way we, have in our pub and the way that I was trained to do it on a mute. It wasn't done that way. It's, it's, and then we blame it on the Afghanistan army collapsing and we're kind of washing our hands of it. It's not our fault, but it is our fault. I just don't, I don't know enough about it. And and I think it's, it's so many layers of fault. It's all of our fault. Just like that Atlantic article talks about, but I, I yeah. don't know if they've ever I just always that. try to balance between like, if you were put in an impossible situation, that there really is no mm. winning, right? Like best case scenario, mm. right? Everyone comes back mm. safe. We don't lose anyone. Worst case scenario, a suicide mm. bomber kills a bunch of people and takes a bunch of Marines mm. and sailors with them, right? That's like worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And it happened. Mm-hmm. God forbid, another. I think yep. after that happened, they were like, we got to get out of here because if it happens again, like it's going to be the end, you know? 
Yeah, I don't know. I also don't know why we didn't go in hard and heavy. We have the ass to do it, you know, and 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 expand our, you know, fuck the Taliban agreement. We got enough ass to, to last in there for a month or two and fuck them up to what we pull everybody out, right? I don't know why we didn't do that. I don't know why we took the shortcut. I just don't understand. I definitely in the winter, in the winter, why don't we wait till the winter when they're not going to fight? Even get, I think even getting that message out to the Marines that the Taliban were in control of security, and for the, even to the veterans, oh, Jesus, veterans were like, "What?" Mm-hmm. 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 I know it's fucking crazy. So I mean, everybody, all our heads should roll, but I don't know, man. And what are your thoughts on the? Because uh, I, I was thinking about this, right? Kabul airport, right? Probably a lot more centralized than, uh, what was it called? Bagram, right? Mm-hmm. Across the desert and everything. And mm-hmm. we had been pulled out of Bagram. Mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, we left Bagram a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. We left it. We pulled out of there already. Yep. And we already knew we had to evacuate people. It's a combination of so many things, dude. And we left Americans back there. And in the, in the administration now, you know, is saying that, uh, they wanted to stay, but they wanted to stay. Some of them wanted to stay because their families are Afghanis and they're not Americans. So the Americans are staying with their families. I mean, it's bullshit. We left, we left them there high and dry. We should have brought their families. So you're saying too. pretty much that the veteran community has reason to be upset. Yeah. And, and the only reason why a lot of uh, Terps are getting out and Afghan friends are getting out because of in informal veteran community is making it happen. It's not done through formal processes. It's, it's connections. Of people, individuals caring are connecting to get these people out. It's not the government doing it for the most part. I mean, it was just last airlift, but this whole time it's been going on through informal chains by veterans. Yeah, I think the veteran community should be angry. And we should be angry at the American people too, because they didn't care until now. So you you think it's both administrations too? Not this. Oh, hell yeah. I know about our administration too. It's all of them. It's been creeping along forever. I mean, no one, and I, I can't say I would, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done any better. I don't know. It's a very hard decision. It's a quagmire. That's why they call it quagmire. It's the same reason why we had, we stuck in Vietnam for so long. So where do we go from here as a community? Oh. I think we need to instill some kind of war tax, number one, because the president has too much power. They have the War Powers Act. All the Congress is trying to get some of that power back, but we can send people out on an emergency and then once they're out on an emergency and in harm's way, Americans feel they rally around the flagpole and go, we're not going to, you know, fuck up, fuck with the president now in time of crisis. So let's support him. And then it becomes this inertia that we stay there. And then Congress has to approve it because they don't want to piss off the Americans are now rallying around the flag. We, we do all that without a debate and it's insanity. So we have to have a war tax to cause Americans to, to, get pissed at their congressmen and their senators to debate why we're going to war. And then they have skin in the game and everything will always be questioned by the public all the time. I think that's what we have to do. I think somehow, I don't know how it's exactly related, but somehow it's connected to the myth, right? So that book, uh, Sapiens by, I forget the name. It's an Israeli guy. I read the book. uh, Yeah. I'll put uh, it in the show notes. I'm actually reading it now. Yeah, Sapiens, right? Do you remember what he talks about? I haven't got to that point yet, but please enlighten us. All right, so, you know, his his hypothesis is that the reason why Homo sapiens um, outlasted every other competitor of uh, Homo erectus or Homo whatever or the Neanderthals, right? The reason why we we were able to survive and thrive 
was because human beings, human homo sapiens are able to, to, to coalesce people into one through myth beyond what a, a standard tribe size is, which is like 300 people. And a tribe is led by an individual with a lot of charisma and leadership power. And they follow that one person. But once that group gets too big, it splits off into another tribe, right? So that's what Neanderthals were like. I'm making, I'm really simplifying this because I'm a simple guy too, but then, but homo sapiens could come along and build religion, for instance. And this myth drives not just a tribe, but thousands of people, maybe even millions of people towards a common objective based on this myth, because we choose to believe this one unifying thing, right? So the America is a myth. The constitution is a myth. We choose to believe in this idea of America and this constitution, right? But now the myth is starting to fray, right? Part of it's because of social media, because the, the, until now the myth has been completely owned by white Americans. You know, it's only recently that we're saying, wait a minute, the constitution is kind of bullshit because it wasn't created for all, you know, all, all men aren't equal, right? And this myth of the lost cause is a bullshit myth that was made up, you know, after the Civil War. Uh, and all, and that now the Americans started to see a uh, white America is starting to see that their picture of America, their myth of America is getting attacked. And they're saying, well, what about our voice? Well, you fucking had your voice for 400 years. Now some of those, these other people are saying, hey, we have a we have a part in this story, too. We want to talk about our part of America. So our myth is evolving and changing. And the, the people that have one view of the myth are resisting and are holding on to it and they want to let it go. And the other people going, fuck that. You know, we we have a say in this myth too. We want it, and and we're we somehow we need to repair this myth so we are going to get together in the right direction. But right now we're not. When you think about elite fighting forces, particularly the one we both served in, United States Marine Corps, how does it fix that myth? Man, I, I don't know. This is where I become divisive because. I mean, I, you know, just I, I believe I'm as right just as much as the other side, quote unquote, believes they're right. But, you know, things like having Fox News in the office is you're not you're not being inclusive. You're excluding black Americans. Right. Uh, because of the things like that doctor said on the show that they're 10 points lower on their IQ. Fuck that. Fuck that. Or the commandant saying that the Confederate flag was divisive and it was hijacked in 2016. Well, what did it mean in 2015? Because to me, it's always meant slavery and treason. So fuck you for not saying it's wrong. Why can't you just say it's wrong? Why do you have to say it's divisive and give the other side uh, leverage and wiggle room to hold on to that? So so I, I, I do think it takes people to stomp it out, you know, but then the other side's going to say, fuck, that's authoritarianism. It's, it's wokeism. It's dictatorial. I don't know how we get out of this. I really You know what I think, too, though? A lot of these people are older, though, sir. You know, they're like the old generation mm-hmm. holding on. And this new generation, you know, mm-hmm. me and you were texting back and forth today. My people might be a lot more moderate than people realize. You know, I just think that it, they're drowned out, like you said, by a lot of the noise, right? Because moderate people, they don't really like, they're not really out there, you know, left or right. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to, you know, again, they're living, doing the best they can with what they have. And I think a lot of these old legacy, whatever, institutions of power, the America that those people grew up in is going to be a lot different than the millennials now. You know, a lot of, a lot of black, yeah. white, I see white kids dapping me up now. You know, mm. hey, what's up, bro? Yeah, it's changing. No, but all, all the, all the young white people I saw, 
in the uh, Black Lives Matter protest was is is really heartening for me. That's awesome for me. So I I like to believe that the silent majority of, of those people, you know, I don't know if they're enough of them are violent enough though because the are they going to stand up and fight if this shit like the Capitol happens? I don't know. Meanwhile, voting rights are getting rolled back, right? And so how do we change a system nonviolently if the voting rights are getting rolled back? And even though there's millions of more left to Democrats and they're all right, we're still losing the at the ballot box. And the all the Republican or the most of the Republican presidents who won lately, right? I can't remember the exact number, but they've won, they've won despite losing the popular vote. So how do you change it in the ballot box if, if the, the system is rigged? What's interesting to me about this debate, though, when we talk about the system being rigged, right? Mm -hmm. People on the far right are saying the mm -hmm. system's rigged. People on mm -hmm. the far yeah. left are saying the system is rigged. But, like, mm -hmm. we ain't coming together. Why? I know. And I'm part of yeah. the problem. It's like, are we saying the same thing or are we saying different things? Well, we can't even agree on facts anymore. Obama talked about that, too. So we can't agree on the facts anymore. You don't have a common starting point, even. You know, back in the 50s, they, the, the biggest complaint was the Republicans and Democrats are too alike. Of course, you know, minorities didn't have a voice in shit. So, But now we do. We're starting to have a voice, and Republicans and Democrats are drifting farther and farther, which goes to your solution, Mike. As, like, yeah, I want to talk about that. So for our listeners, I wrote an essay uh, entitled... Uh, what did I title my essay? Let me let me pull it up. Here we go. The dangers of a military dictatorship in America. A cautionary tale for those mm -hmm. who served. And I struggled trying mm -hmm. to record a podcast for that essay on here because I I wanted to make sure I said it in a way that didn't polarize me from the community that I love, which is the veteran community and the community that supports me. But the bigger thing I've been trying to convey in this sense of like, you know, there is this belief, which you go back to American exceptionalism, that we can't have a military dictatorship in America, that it would never happen, that we would never have a military coup, you know? But when I watch mainstream media, conservative, and I see a military that seems like it's aligned with one particular party, I can't help but look at that and say, hey, what can stop? And everyone is undermining the federal government, by the way, right? There's nothing that can stop that political party from deploying the military if they think they're justifiably right and then what position does that put us in that puts us in the same position we fight against in a lot of these other countries where we have this like military dictatorship and everyone thinks they're right yep yep so your solution you talked about was having a we need to have more parties we can't be we've, two we've exhausted the two-party system i think it's dangerous and I think it's doing more harm mm -hmm. than good. And the fact that, like, again, the military is like a big institution, right? That's, you know, 7% veterans. I think 7% of the nation are military veterans. But in terms of power, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. it's not the percentage. It's in terms of power and influence overall. And when all that power is consolidated mm -hmm. in one party, there's nothing stopping that party from, you know, doing God knows what, you know? And I, my fear yeah. is I don't want to live in a fucking Fox News America. You know, yeah. that is a scary America to me. And I know the people that are listening are like, well, yeah. I don't want to fucking live in a CNN America because that's scary to them too. So it's like, where is the common ground? You know, and I think it's just like, we just need, we need a, a space for more voices. 
You know, that's why I'm excited about entrepreneurship, honestly, because at the very least, right, I can create a media platform that gives a voice for guys like me and you. Yeah. I don't know, man, because it's scary. I think we could easily, I, I can picture a scenario. We end up like India in a partition in 1947, where it breaks up into India and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh, or East Pakistan before Bangladesh, right? And the Muslims all move to one place and the Hindus all move to the other place. And there's a lot of movement going around and, and there's hate over those divisions. It could easily happen here. And I mean, we really haven't healed the North-South divide. We're still fighting over the same shit. So we, we could partition and there'd be a lot of movement and, and pain and stuff. It's crazy. When you that. start to go back in time and you really like, we're historians, you start to look at that stuff. A lot of the stuff is very similar, right? What happened in the election, of Abraham Lincoln, right? People felt like it wasn't a justified election, right? That it wasn't real. And yeah. like now we have social media and we have stuff moving in real time, right? Imagine mm-hmm. like how the mythology of this stuff got spread over months and weeks. No. Um, mm-hmm. I can only imagine like what people were thinking because they didn't have the real time information like we have now. So there's a lot of variables that took place that led to the Civil War. But again, disputed election. Right. People divided all of this kind of stuff. So like what is the variable that we have now that prevented that stuff happening? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it really prevented it. 30 percent of Americans, I think, I read somewhere, still believe the election was a fraud and it was stolen. So. Just we have the social media and the internet now, but it's just all it's done is create echo chambers and and overwhelmings where no one even knows what the facts is and they, facts are, and they just go to what they want to go to, and they hear they're in an echo chamber. I mean, I don't know how the hell are we going to defeat climate change. I'm almost scared to say it because I know a large portion of Americans are going to say climate change that's fucking bullshit or it's not human caused, and I'm going yes it is. Scientists say it. I mean, just the same people who don't believe that masks help or don't don't believe the vaccine and COVID. And it, it boggles my mind. Almost, it's got to the point where it's almost hard for me to say it out loud because I know almost half the people are going to laugh at me, right? So it's we it's crazy. How are we going to fix that? I think the crazy part is like, going back to what you said, though, of like people not accepting people's choices or thoughts, you know? It's like, how you think, how can you think that, you know? So it's like you got to maneuver in a way where it's like, you're trying not to necessarily be like polarizing because we're at a point like you don't even know where people stand on stuff, you know? And I know some very smart, intelligent, whatever, like you say, people that think that the election was stolen, they freaking told me, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just a very interesting time, like in the human experience for Americans. And yeah, it's scary. And I'm scared for my kids. I'm scared for them having kids. And meanwhile, we have climate change on top of it, right? And how are you going to get fix climate change or try to get control of it? Every motherfucking car that's on the street in America, we love our cars, has to come off. Well, how the only kind of government that can do that is one that makes it happen and increases gas taxes so much that people go to electric vehicles and we build the in- infrastructure for that. And we find, you know, natural energy sources. It's all in a country that resists any sort of, any sort of top-down push. But that's also kind of a lie because in Texas and in Florida, the state governments are fucking nixing any county action. They're saying, no, uh-uh, we're telling you what you're doing. So this big government down there, they won't accept it from the federal level. So it's just, it's exhausting. How are you keeping peace? Because you seem fired up about a lot of issues. What are you doing to like, you know, not be so fired up? Working out. 
I don't, I don't know. I should be right more working. I'm fired up about it. I've, you know, I, Scheller's got me fired up. His earlier posts were already firing me up when he was talking about uh, how 10% of only 10%, I can't remember the percentages, but he's saying how most young people don't want to go fight for their country or something like that. And he was speaking with a very arrogant uh, tone of, of an elite military class, which leads right into what you're talking about, the danger of a military dictatorship. And it fires me up and his people, his supporters are hating me. They're fucking threatening me. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm people been coming at you fight. for a minute. The minute you wrote out that, first of all, that's how I found you. You wrote out that military article, you know, and you, you had the gen, picture of all the white generals and I, mm -hmm. man, you crushed it, but I'm sure you had a lot of hate from that. So. Oh yeah. But now, now since I've seen January 6th happen and the Capitol assault fucking, I think it's real. The threat is real. I didn't even talk about January 6th again on this podcast. And I was talking to somebody about it the other day and he said he didn't think it was like a big deal, right? He thinks that the media made it to be something bigger than it really was. And I said to him, I was like, going back to the conversation we just had of, if that's the case, imagine how, uh, what if, you know, uh, when Crispus Attucks was shot, the Boston Massacre, right? What if we hyped that up? You know, it's like, I think the thing with everything comes back to the media and it's like how we remember it, how we talk about it. Thing with January 6th was it was visible. It was photos, it was pictures, it was video, people died, you know? But it's like, how does that message get spread across America and who controls that narrative? And I think that's where the big pushback came from what took place. Yeah, and so I'm, once again, I'm at a loss because the pictures are there, the video's there, it's all there. The, the testimony from the cops is there. Yet people still deny it. They call the cops or actors on behalf of the left, and fuckers getting tased like a hundred times in the back of the head. It's just, and they don't believe them. They don't believe them. So how do you? I do with think that? we're at a I do think we're at an interesting crossroads though, because not I'm not political. I'm apolitical. I got. I'm about to start a new party, Common Good Party or something. I don't know. Um, but here's where I think people are right about politics, right? And we talk about accountability and it goes back to the military dictatorship thing of what happens when the highest person in the federal government undermines the federal government, you delegitimize it in the eyes of everyday American citizens. And it's one thing if it's just like some disgruntled government employee, but when you're the fucking president of the United States. You know, oh, yeah. saying these guys are don't trust them. Don't trust this. It's all rigged. Right. Mm -hmm. You delegitimize the government. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? The military delegitimizes the government. And then what else happens? The whole world's mm -hmm. watching because they ain't like this stuff is getting said privately. Mm -hmm. It's like I can imagine people all over the world probably just watching America. They're like, look at the Americans fuck up this pull out in Afghanistan. You know, Look at them go at mm -hmm. each other's throats on social media. You know, look at their crazy mm -hmm. conservative and liberal media networks. Right. They're like, you guys look like assholes. And we, you know, they're soaking oh, yeah. it up. Yeah. That, we've lost our myth ever since uh, the Cold War ended. We've been struggling and we're losing it. I think we could gain back international prestige if we lead the way on climate change on, on how to fight it. We should lead it. We should be fucking putting all our energy into the technologies that will overcome it. We should be spreading that technology for free. We should be developing how to do potable water and mass quantities and giving that technology out to the world for free and they'll love us and then you change minds and, that, and that's the best kind of power of all right it's not force it's volunteer getting people to voluntarily follow you and we can do that through world leadership and climate change 
but we're too busy fucking around. You know what I think up. is going to happen next, too, though? That we're going to have a chance to either hit a home run or punt are the Afghan refugees. And they're already talking negative mm-hmm. about it. So this is one of my things. Like, this is one of the hard parts of me with Afghanistan, right? The first time I heard the word sand nigger, and I'm like, sand nigger? I'm like, what's a sand mm-hmm. nigger? What's a... Yeah. <laughs> what is that saying? What are you saying about me? RC, right? You know? What's in the military? Mm-hmm. You know? In the Marine Corps, yep. right? And I had yep. an officer on here, Nate Jester, who had a fucking captain instructing him at IOC and said, when you get over there and you kill a bunch of sand niggers, right? So, like, in my mind, it's already programmed. This is what we think of Afghan, Af- Afghans, right? And I keep saying, is mm-hmm. the word Afghan itself derogatory, right? But everybody I ask is an, Af- mm-hmm. is an Afghan, so they say mm-hmm. no. But, like, I don't know. Maybe it's derogatory. I don't know. No, it's like saying American. The other thing, too, is the first time I heard the word subhuman was in reference to the Afghans. You know, so part of me is like, this is how we thought of these people. And this is how we were programmed to think of them because we were trained Mm -hmm. to kill them. You know, and it's funny how comical Mm -hmm. all that stuff looks now. The strategic corporal, you know, Lance Corporal that can't pay Mm -hmm. his bills. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. or take care of his wife (laughs) is going to go build this, uh, and, and, you know, it's going to go build a school district or something. Like, what do we do? Especially with our yeah, training, with our training pipeline. And that, that was another thing, you know. The Afghan military uh, is overrun. How'd it happen so quick? We weren't even allowed to brief the Afghan military. We had to put security on them, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, go back and mm-hmm. look at this stuff, y'all. We had Lance Corporal's strategic corporal who was leading the counterinsurgency. And literally, these corporals could not pay their rent, you know. Yep. And but we don't train them to to think we train them to be right. automatons still. We're starting to change it now. We're trying to apparently. SOIs change the way they're they're raising infantry marines to think more. But for this whole, you know, most of my all my career and, and all the time before that, it was almost like a caste system based on British century caste and uh, class system. So if you're enlisted, you're fucking stupid and just say yes, no, maybe so, or and do what you're told and stay inside the lines and shut the fuck up when we tell you to do something. And then you know, Krulak comes out with a strategic corporal and they got to be able to think because it has a strategic impact and they have to have judgment. Yet we take their cell phones away when they're in school in Marine Corps training because we don't trust them with a cell phone. We're going to get them a rifle with a bullet in it. I, they it can't go. They sense. can't go visit their buddy on leave. You know, hey, you got to yeah. rest break every three hours. Now put it on the map right here. Mm-hmm. Put it on the map. Where are you stopping? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it's all bullshit. So we don't train them to think with judgment. They get stupid, more stupid because of our training, not smarter. And then and then we say this other thing on the other side of our mouths, say how much, you know, how they're a strategic corporal and it's bullshit because we haven't trained them. Going yeah. back to the refugees, right? So I was mm-hmm. in a housing project this weekend. Fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Terrible the way see these kids live in this environment. I mean, it was terrible. You can't even believe human beings live in some of these places. And I'm thinking to myself, mm-hmm. is this where they're about to put the refugees? You know, where do they mm-hmm. fit in the American poverty system? You know, because I know our black people are down mm-hmm. there right now, you know. And so it's like I'm interested to see once the reality hits of our responsibility to these people and then that they come here, you know, how are we going to start treating and talking about them? Oh, shit. You know, you already know. Half the you know half the Americans won't like it because it will cost money, and where's that money going to come from? Taxes. 
and they don't like social programs, even though they're benefiting from social programs, from the highways and roads that are fixed by the governments, right? By schools, by hospitals. All this is government work. It's so they even have social security. Yeah, anytime you talk social socialism, they fucking go ape shit like we're talking about communism. It's bullshit. And the worst class of people that talk about it are the military. But guess who is the only class in America that lives a socialistic system? We do, right? I was a colonel in the military. I was there as a careerist, right? I got I lived on base, was provided a house. I had medical care for free. We had a commissary with no taxes. My kids get to go to school. I have a pension. That's socialism. I loved it. It was beautiful. Why the fuck did we do that for everybody? Yet the military is the one who fights it. We're, a lot of the military, a lot of military people, because they tend to be right wing, are screaming about how bad socialism in is while they're the only ones living. It's it takes a paradigm shift, right? And you got to have self awareness. I've been calling military welfare. You know, it really is right. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It you is. Know? And a lot of people stay yep. in, if we're being honest, because you start looking to transition out, and what happens? You gotta, you gotta start covering that stuff out of pocket. You know, and a lot of these kids mm-hmm. and these projects can't even get good health care, can't get dentists, can't do all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the tide is shifting, too, because I've talked to some conservative people, you know, and, you know, people are starting to ask themselves of, like, how can we be the most, you know, best country in the world and we still have kids living like they're in fucking caves? Absolutely. It's terrible. I don't understand. I, we should have we should have medical care for every American. I don't see how it's un-American to not want to have universal health coverage. Just, I just don't understand it. And and um, you know you know how much money I had to make on the civilian side to make up three hundred thousand a year. I, <laughs> I I had to make another hundred thousand. You're about right. Another hundred thousand on top of my retirement and VA benefits. Another whole hundred thousand off a civilian job to be able to match my standard of living that I had in the Marine Corps when I retired. Right. Yet we're the ones complaining about everybody else's social benefits. That's why, sir, you got to be a recurring guest because we got a lot of we hit a lot of topics. I brought you on to talk about Afghanistan. We hit Afghanistan. We hit climate change. You know, talk about the Afghan refugees. Right. Which is a crisis coming. And I've already seen them negative in the conservative media. They're already starting to stoke those fires. Who are these people that we let in? Mm -hmm. You know, where are they coming from? Right. So I'm going to be interested to watch that um, play out. And the time we have left, right, we've got listeners viewing mm-hmm. from all over the country, all over the world. And I'll be honest, sir, your podcast, the first one you came on, is one of like the highest downloaded podcasts. So clearly you have an audience and clearly, clearly people are interested in what you have to say. But as we close out and kind of wrap up, you know, how we move forward with our remembrance of Afghanistan and the mythology of Afghanistan and the people that need to be held accountable for it, you know, what kind of closing remarks would you like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I, I I don't want any Marine, soldier, sailor, airman, or or anybody, you know, even government worker, or State Department who've been over there to think it was a waste, because it can't have been all a waste, right? It ha- you didn't lose a son or daughter to a waste. They helped somebody. Maybe some one of Afghan's life was better, even if for twenty for two decades or a day. It wasn't a waste. From a national level, yeah, it. It didn't make economic sense. We lost a lot of blood and treasure over there for for what? I don't know. But at an individual level, there's no shame on what we did. And we should be really proud of our actions over there because it did make a difference to somebody. I think meaning is a choice. We get to choose how we remember things or we make meaning from things. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. I think people need to start like, again, I sleep fine at night, you know, because I, I'm more stressed out being an entrepreneur than, you know, thinking about Afghanistan. But for me, it was like, mm-hmm. I always just tried to do the best I could with what I had. You know? And I don't feel like I did anything mm-hmm. that compromised my morals or compromised anything on, my, on me. Mm-hmm. Even when I led that fucked up attack, you know, I'm still able to sleep. Mm-hmm. But I just challenge yeah. people to, to kind of make their own meaning and to continue to talk to each other. And you don't got to necessarily agree with yeah. each other, but like there is power in texting each other, you know, and and yeah. breaking bread and talking about this stuff. Because if we don't talk about it, then it just kind of festers in our minds and starts to spill over. You're so right. Miko has been a huge help to me. And while we really, we talk rarely, maybe once every couple of months, but I swear every couple of weeks he'll pop up going, how are you doing? And it's been really helpful. So you're right. I'm like, we need to reach out to each other. What are you got cooking up? What's your next thing? You've been writing. I know you edited my essay, right? But what is the future looking like for you? I'm trying to get something started with Jake, his wig. No, you're good. I cut out, you good. I'm trying to get something started with Jake's wig, spinning a little bit with that, but trying to uh, help recruitment of really but minorities who will thrive, right? The way we do recruiting now, we don't always look for the our, the best, capable, most uh, amazing minority. They get sucked up somewhere else, right? But we want to recruit the best, most capable heavy hitters coming out of college or wherever to join the military. So we're trying to do that. He's doing most of the legwork. I just chop a lot of stuff that he writes, um, but he's allowing me to join on a team if it ever gets off the ground. And on a personal level, I've been trying to, buy land. I was about to buy it this summer, but we just refinanced our house. So you got to wait six months or, t- or I'm sorry, six payments or 210 days before you can get another VA loan. So I was unable to buy land this summer, but I, I looked at a piece of property that uh, adjoined the national forest. So I'd have unlimited room to nat land nap and a piece of ape, some land myself to shoot. And I was going to train lieutenants who just got commissioned before they hit the basic school uh, out there because it's just too hard to do out of my house to try to find a place to swim or shoot, do any of that. It's just impossible. So once I buy that piece of land, I'm going to spend, uh, I'll take leave every summer for a month and do that shit until I can. Where did your writing background come from? Um, I don't know. My dad was a writer who chopped my stuff, essays in high school and I teachers that chopped. I, was I, hope, lucky. To see, I hope to see more of that yeah, coming no. out of you. I appreciate your writing. I appreciate you editing my stuff. So I'm gonna keep sending it to you. You please do. I get a lot of pleasure from reading your stuff. It's good. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Where can people find you at, sir? How can they support your efforts? You know, where are we directing people to? Well, you can always uh, email me at tjhobbs00 at gmail.com. So that's Tango Juliet, Hobbs, H-O-B-B-S, Hotel Oscar, Barbara, Barbara, Sierra, 00 at gmail.com. And I'll always reply. One thing I want our listeners to do, too. I'm going to include a link in the show note to a newsletter I read called The War in Afghanistan is What Happens When McKinsey Types Run Everything by a guy named Matt Stoller. So I'm going to include that in the links in the show notes. Check it out. It gives a great overview of the debacle of the Afghanistan situation that goes back, you know, decades. Um, I read it. I read it just before we started the show. I got one article out there, too that a friend of mine sent me and it's called trying to find the signal in the noise of Afghanistan. Um, it's by, hold on one second, Sean Patrick Hughes. 
And it was really, really good Perfect. as well. Send me the link to that article, sir, and I'll go ahead and put it in the show notes. I will. And for all of our listeners, I, I'm, I appreciate y'all. And, you know, this podcast, it's not easy getting podcasts out week over week, but I'm finding myself really enjoying having this medium. And I think of myself as like, like a James Baldwin, right? All I do is I just bear witness. I try to speak my truth. It blends a little bit of writing, a little bit of journalism. But as I come across topics, I'm super excited to share them with you all. And I'm just, I'm just thankful for you all being a part of this journey with me, whether you agree with my guest or the topics I cover or not. And uh, we got a lot to cover in the future. I'm going to keep bringing Colonel Hobbs on, make him a recurring guest, uh, even though when he's fired up, you know, <laughs> get him on here to chop it up with y'all. But uh, for all my listeners, do me a favor and subscribe and support this podcast on Substack by sign up at our newsletter at the link in the show notes. I'm pushing out, I'm publishing on Substack, which is a newsletter platform. So you can expect at least one newsletter from me per week on Sundays at noon and one podcast per week. And I actually got my newsletter out later on Friday than I would have liked, but I got it out anyway. So uh, make sure you're reading them and checking it out. And then also I'm writing every single day on Twitter. I'm publishing a new essay every day on Twitter as part of my writing course, Ship 30 for 30. And to be honest, I think I'm going to keep going uh, once that program ends because I've just found such joy in writing, I guess, you know, and I, I see the world and I'm like, what am I going to write about today? What am I going to write about tomorrow? So if you want to read some of my essays, just go ahead and uh, head over to my Twitter or subscribe to the newsletter. And if you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can let me know by shooting me an email at mike at weareironbound.com and just clicking the tab uh, or going to my website and clicking the tab that says book me to speak. So uh, make sure you sign up at confessionsofanativeson.com. Sign up for that newsletter and uh, keep getting this great content. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't have feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.